here again with Rich Penix as we continue to talk about worship. In the last episode, we learned that worship is not just singing. It's something that involves the congregation. And while all of life is worship, there's something unique and important and beautiful about the worship of the gathered assembly. Rich, thanks for recording another episode with us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. I wanted to follow up on a couple of items that we talked about in the first episode. The, you mentioned that one of the benefits of the Reformation was that the divide between the clergy and the laity was torn down in such a way that the congregation actually worshipped. They didn't just show up to hear a performance, but they were meaningfully involved. And as we trace history in many areas of life, including church history, what our forebears have fought against, we often just passively welcome. And it seems that in our day, it's popular for Christians to show up to corporate worship and just observe rather than participate. And so you'll look around the gathering room, and while the band plays their riff and sings their song, no one in the congregation is singing. There's no involvement in prayer or following along in the scripture while the word is preached. How do we guard against that while also being open to allowing different aspects of our culture to positively influence what we incorporate into worship? And so whether that's in a time of singing, you know, a, a guitar that's plugged in or during the time of preaching, using a microphone and all of these aspects, how do, how do we keep the congregation worshiping together instead of just viewing a performance? Yeah, and I bemoan that aspect of our, our kind of blanket categorization of North American worship is, is not great. And we've exported a lot uh, to the to the nations that have uh, been harmful in many ways, and and our more recent forebears in this country, um, you know, we, there there has been so much uh, of the commodity of worship that has been sold and and made into a a huge industry, and so kind of what we see and and what is coached to so many churches to look like is is just a a more attractive object on a shelf that can be sold well. And I think this creates all kinds of, of really poor appetites in God's people so that the expectation for what uh, even a, a church service is and what then they ought to do during it is completely off base. Um, now, I don't want to I don't want to swing too hard and certain certain people have have sought to make night, neat clean categories that you know all, uh, wrong and tainted aspects of worship look and sound exactly like this. I think it's way more complicated than that. And I think there is a a, a, a rolling contextualization as a, a phrase that use sometimes to describe the way in which the church slowly adjusts um, and, and incorporates some aspects of, of culture that that help and, and communicate a certain accessibility and understandability um, to to people in a certain given place. But overall, I think uh, just some simple principles, even to think of that, that a variety of even styles can fit under is uh, first, can the people, let's just take singing in particular, can the people hear themselves singing? 
Uh, we know in Scripture we're to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and I don't think it's asking too much that the people of God actually hear another Christian singing. Um, now, I know there's more to singing to one another. There's the, the visual as well, There's, um, uh, there, but I, I, I do think that can be a, a guiding principle. Am I creating such a loud environment that it almost conveys a message to uh, the the person in the pew, you know what, it doesn't matter if you sing or not, we're not going to hear you. So all that really matters at the end of the day is what we're doing up on stage, which I think then morphs you right back into where uh, the kind of battles that the Reformation was saying, no, this is, we are restoring worship to the people, uh, just as the Word of God is now in the language of the people and they can understand it, so too ought uh, the prayers and the songs and all aspects as priests before God. Um there's a variety of different other concepts that come to mind, but that, that's just a an example there. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I was really helped by a document I think that you might have written that's on Eden's website with um, values for corporate worship. I think, I forget the exact title, but focusing particularly on singing. And one of the things that I thought about with that is I think every one of those principles could be exported to Africa or Mexico or France, and they can be worked out, but they're going to look very different. And so while we talk about emphasizing the congregation's role in corporate worship, that doesn't mean it's always going to look the same, but it does keep some of those principles in mind. Absolutely. And as soon as we start creating extra biblical categories that only work for us in our, our backyard, uh, you know, the, the more we've probably removed ourselves from the what is most clear in Scripture that is, is we should be most comfortable with and give ourselves to. In the last episode, we talked about corporate worship as an act of the New Covenant community. We are Baptists who believe that those who are in the New Covenant community are those who have been regenerated, who have come to put their faith in Christ, who have repented of their sins, and really who have been baptized. So how do we think about children who have not done that as it relates to their participation in corporate worship, whether we're talking about a children's choir or a child listening to a sermon next to mom and dad or to taking the Lord's Supper? Yeah, and this is uh, the presence of the wheat and the tares um, is is something we know there will always be. Uh, there will there will be those that will mimic the the life pattern of Judas um, or other New, Tes- New Testament examples of those that were giving the appearance of following and then eventually made shipwreck of their faith. Uh, we know that, um, and we also know from First Corinthians fourteen that there ought to be the expected, there is ex- the expectation that there will be unbelievers in our midst. And that's one of the kind of core convictions for why worship should be intelligible. It shouldn't be such a club lingo that is completely unintelligible uh, to those uh, outside so that they can't even have the opportunity to fall on their face and say, surely God is in this place. Mm-hmm. Um, so all Christian worship is inherently evangelistic. Because, going back to what we discussed earlier, if it is representing the gospel each and every week, even in structure, you're not going to miss it. You're going to see the glory of God. 
you're going to see that need for grace and the, that, that there has been an assurance of this pardon in Christ and that because of that union with Christ, now we can live a life of obedience. Mm-hmm. And, and representing that each and every week is itself uh, by bringing a, a, a child who is unregenerate, maybe boldly so, but by allowing him week after week to marinate in these gospel themes, we sow seeds in faith that, that God will do what God will do with his gospel, um, even as the, the sermon hopefully is making that appeal uh, regularly as well to the lost, to trust um, in faith and repentance. Uh, so too are, are these seeds that uh, by... And, and you know, we all know that um, there, there's many, many people, although theologically we are called out of darkness into light, and that justification is something that, that, that takes place uh, at a moment in time. So many of our stories don't quite match that. Mm-hmm. And God is working in many ways, even bringing us to faith. Uh, and by us, I mean you know those maybe growing up in a church, and we can't quite know exactly when. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a sowing of, of seeds in faith that God's going to use um, you know, his word in, in this grace of corporate worship as an integral part of that um, evangelistic work, even in, in the life of, of the children of believers to, to draw them to faith. So their participation in marginal ways, I think, can help encourage and uh, that, that process. Yeah, so it's sort of a pattern of raising them so that God willing, one day they, they'll say, I don't know when, but for my whole life, I've always just been mm-hmm. taught to trust and obey Jesus. That's right. And, right. and that's not a bad thing. Absolutely. That's, that's a very good thing. Right. And so how churches flesh out children's choirs and participation right. in how or how how you would define a marginal mm-hmm. participation, mm-hmm. there will be differences, mm-hmm. but the the orientation should be to allow children to intelligibly participate in corporate worship. Absolutely, I think, because you're, you're simultaneously discipling other ones that have already come to know the Lord, and so they are then growing in their ability to serve and to um, equip the body and to encourage the body, as well as kind of calling through their participation those that are not yet trusting um, as well. So in that in that way, it's an act of discipleship. As we think about discipleship, we have recently gone through the fir- book of First Corinthians as a church, and Paul has a big emphasis on what some have called eschatological discipleship. So wherever Paul confronts an issue, he points them to think towards the future and not just upon death as a disembodied soul, but as it's a resurrected body and soul united together. So when we think about worship and eschatological discipleship, our orientation towards the future, what does the Bible have to say about our worship upon our death as a disembodied soul? And then does the Bible have anything to give us a window into what worship of God on the new earth will look like in our resurrected state? I recently finished a course in which a lot of our studies uh, had us reading uh, Gerhardus Voss, and he's big on emphasizing the the end of all things. So he, you know, the eschatology is not only the, the study of last things, but the study of ultimate things. So in a sense, corporate worship is 
is hardwired to the the the, the study of ultimate things, the greatest realities that will, in their full form, one day uh, in all eternity, um, we are preparing ourselves in the here and now so much for what will be. Uh, ultimate in the presence of God. And I think, you know, our strongest cues are probably the uh, the more obvious texts from the book of Revelation. In Revelation 4 and 5, we see sort of a growing uh, expansion of worship. Uh, we see the 24 elders worshiping before the throne, and they are singing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we see thousands upon thousands of angels crying, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. And then we see every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea. So now this is, this is as, as universal as it can get. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. Because by Jesus' blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And making them, I think this is an important concept, a kingdom of priests for God. This is what way back in Exodus is the, the point of God um, instituting and, and, and making a people, calling out a people for himself, that they would be before him a kingdom of priests. And then we see kind of the full flourishing, the end of this uh, in, in Revelation, as now not only the people of Israel, but all the peoples of the earth are now represented among that kingdom of priests. And so the the, the, the end of our, our worship is, is no longer a, a, a veiled worship where we worship in faith, but our faith has become sight. And now um, our, what, what do priests do in the Old Testament? They, they, they serve God in his holy presence. And one of our key points in defining what worship is scripturally is that it is service to God. And so our, our worship is not only a, a, a singing or offering prayers, it is a full-orbed, we serve God for all eternity as a kingdom of priests together for all eternity. And, uh, you know, this, this ever-expanding scene of cosmic worship uh, has Jesus the Lamb as its central focus. And our eternal vocation, if you will, in the New Jerusalem is to serve God in His holy presence worshiping him uh, world without end. And so you kind of see then at the end of Revelation uh, 19, 20, 21, uh, we see these symbols of beauty and glory and worship, but only a final uh, streaming in of the glory of the nations and the kings honoring Jesus the King, who is himself the temple to his people. And so we can only surmise from there the the mysteries of, of what this all will look like but these are the glimpses that at least John gives us of worship in the eschaton that we we know will be far better than the greatest corporate worship service we've ever been a part of. Well, our, our corporate worship services now orient us to the return of Christ, and one element of those services, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, is intended to do so in particular. I want to ask you, Rich, off the cuff, how often should we practice the Lord's Supper? I'm not looking so much for a theological argument for the importance of the Lord's Supper, but maybe more, what have you observed if you've studied church history and in the practice of corporate worship, and is there a conclusion on how regularly churches ought to practice the Lord's Supper? Yeah, and I think the key there is is regular, obviously. Um, 
and if a, a church is giving inattention to this, then it's it's just sort of a, um, you know, I was aware of a church a while ago that sometimes it'd only be a couple times a year, mm-hmm. and that that's not without precedent. Some some uh, aspects, I believe, the Scottish Presbyterian Church would it was very rare. It was sort of a a once a year, sometimes almost uh, representative of Passover that there'd be this months of uh, heart inspection, and it would just be this grand, grand event. Um, so you've got that kind of on the one end, but um, I, my understanding, and I'll, I'll need to deepen my knowledge of this um, over time, is that through the the Roman Catholic Church's precedence, in the, at least in the, the Western Church, um, you know, this was a weekly observance up until the Reformation. And so the, what the Reformation did was it, it wanted to so emphasize the primacy of the Word and the and to highlight the abuses of the Eucharist that it started to, to, to separate the two where uh, there wouldn't be that uh, regularity. And so sometimes it became monthly, sometimes it became quarterly. And so once you get to sort of the Westminster uh, Assembly, and they're putting together the directory for public worship. You see a lot of disagreement happening there, and and some compromising, and some some arguing. Well, it should at least be quarterly. Well, let's land on monthly, and so a lot of debate even happened there. But I, to to my knowledge, it wasn't really until the Reformation that it was even separated from a weekly observance. Um, Acts two forty two, uh, and that. The, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You know, I think it's safe to conclude that this was a regular, uh, routine, probably weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, and it's it's just uh, the the various strains of of Protestantism that, in order to so emphasize, I think, the singular importance of the Word, sometimes those have been been separated. And so, what churches do from there? Um, there's a lot of a latitude and just discernment. But okay, um, so so if we were talking to one of the reformers and asked them, why aren't you observing the Lord's Supper weekly? They would probably reference something to do with both Roman Catholic practice and this renewed emphasis on the Word. I, I from again from the best of my understanding, I think that is. That is where the, the the departure started to be made. Okay. Um, on this point, in so I I don't think that most people you would talk to today would give those reasons. Someone might object. Well, it adds a longer time to the service, mm-hmm. or perhaps people might start to get bored or or devalue the Lord's Supper if we observe it weekly. Right. How would you respond to those objections to to the idea of a weekly Lord's Supper? Right. I, I think they're all pretty um I don't want to say feelings oriented objections, but someone may so have been ingrained in Protestant churches that they never saw the Lord's Supper other than, you know, quarterly. And so if someone introduces it weekly, their immediate reaction is, this is Catholic. This is wrong. <laughs> you know, this shouldn't be. And they're not sure why it shouldn't be. They just think it shouldn't be. Um, the the common objection is that it's this is a, not a profaning, but a regularizing of what ought to be a, a, a unique and special occasion. 
you know, if you have a holiday every single week, is it not, you know, de- you know devalued of its, that type of thing? Um, and so I, I think I don't think these these have much substance to them. I think it's more just people saying this is different. It's not what I'm used to, and I think it it's. Um, and of course, the obvious answer is, what about all the other biblically prescribed um, aspects of worship that we do each and every week? We're not looking to reinvent the wheel every single week so that you have a, you know, an energetic, um, you know, experience of worship that's different than the week before. Uh, and if indeed the Lord's Supper is one of those prescribed means of grace, then a weekly observance, I don't think, um, devalues it at all. And many would many would say it is. It's almost a uh, safety net that assures them that they will always preach Christ, at least through the, the symbol of um, symbolism in the supper. That Christ will always be typically the last thing that a church will do before it leaves. So, in that sense, um, you know the, that particular aspect of preaching Christ and emphasizing Christ is never lost weekly. Well, we've talked a lot about corporate worship as we close here. Can you help us think about the regular rhythm of worship, whether that's in the Lord's Supper or in the structure of a service? We know we learn through our minds. We read content, we think about it, we learn, but it also seems as if we learn in some unique way through our bodies, through the rituals we walk through, and using ritual in the positive sense there. As as we as leaders of a church think about corporate worship, as we as members of a church think about corporate worship, how can we engage in these rhythms in a way that we learn through both our minds and our bodies as we seek to worship God together? Yeah, and you can fill me in on a little bit more if, if you have something particular in mind, Aaron, but I think the um, so many, so many uh, commands in Scripture involving the praise of God, lifting holy hands in prayer, um, you know, the, the bowing, even as we said, is uh, both in Greek and Hebrew, is, is the concept of lowering one's body. Uh, there is a strong connection between what our bodies do in the same sense of, you know, a child that can't say I'm obeying in my heart and not actually live it out with their body. Um, our worship is to the Lord done with these, um, the bodies he's given us. So, Oftentimes, that's in different cultures get this sometimes better than our more stoic uh, traditions, perhaps. Um, I remember visiting a, a church in Latvia that uh, was a Russian Baptist congregation there, and it didn't matter the age of the person. I mean, that, that stone-cold concrete floor had every elderly person and young person on their knees oh, for wow. a long period of time praying, because I think there was an understanding of the... Um, the, the need for what prayer communicates and what that posture even says uh, in their bodies before the Lord. And of course, each church is going to come to, you know, different certain uh, what's what's normal, and we, we don't want to overtly parade ourselves in different manners that do nothing but sort of call attention to ourselves. But, but the appropriateness of lifting hands to the Lord or dropping to our knees um, is, is absolutely biblical and oftentimes very helpful. Well, thank you, Rich. We believe that God is worthy of our worship, and we ought to think carefully and rightly and biblically about these things. So help, thank you for helping us do that, and we look forward to your sharing with us in the days ahead. Questions and Answers about the Bible and Theology is a podcast of Crystal Lake Baptist Church. 
You can learn more at www.clbcmn.org.